Welcome to the Legendarium Green Team. I'm your host, Kip Tan, and with me today are Aerodandis. Hello. And Little Red Book. Hi there. Today, we'll be continuing our discussion of the Uplift Storm trilogy, covering parts one and two of Heaven's Reach, the final book of the Uplift Storm trilogy. We're splitting this book up into three episodes. The first will be parts one and two, the second will cover parts three and four, and the final episode will cover part five and end with a general recap of the Uplift saga in its entirety. There's just so much to cover in this book that we thought this made sense. Because we're just talking about the first part of a final book, this entire episode will contain spoilers for the Uplift Saga. I'll start off with a quick recap of the events of Part 1 and 2. We meet Harry Harms, observer for the Institute of Navigation, and the weird dimension of e-space which he monitors. We accompany him back to Kazkark Base, where we finally get to see an outpost of the civilization of five galaxies. Streaker plays desperate gambles, contemplating suicide by recently activated T-Point before enigmatic machines and Zhang rise from Ismanudi's chromosphere. Jillian decides negotiation with Zhang might be safer than suicide and gets the Glavers to help. Behind her back, Tisht sneaks away to communicate with the imprisoned Roken, and Lark and Ling flee Joe Fur and Ran aboard the Polkjihi, but Ling is captured as she sends Lark to safety. While the Zhang fight off the Joe Fur, Streaker is escorted away, but little did they know the Zhang was leading them back to the fractal world. There we discover that Emerson's Maimain was much more surgical than it seemed, and the old ones carry the missing piece of his brain, hoping to bargain. Once again, Streaker causes chaos within the fractal world, but this time the damage is lethal. As it escapes, the giant Criswell structure is destroyed. All the wilds were and ready, bicker in a dilapidated spaceship, but managed to call in one of the machines. Will it eat them? Read and find out. Okay. I don't Let's... remember that part. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, if you just don't remember, if you can just skip where and If you don't remember it, it's because time. it was inconsequential. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll, I'll go back to what I said back in Brightness Reef. I, you can just not read the ready parts, and you're going to be perfectly fine. Dwer and Ready in these two parts of the book were completely inconsequential. Yep. Their little bits were added in so that later parts of the book will make sense. Like, there will be continuity of their character line, but like, Mm, mm. I would have been fine not having this section. <laughs> not having them in this section at all. It would have been great. So we, we jumped to that. How did you guys like the first two parts? So, man, there's just a, a lot of stuff getting thrown at you. Like a whole lot of stuff. And Let's start with Harry. Okay. okay. How did you like Harry? He was annoying. His parts were good. I enjoyed his parts. But he himself, <laughs> as a character, not as annoying as Reddy. But, yeah. Okay. I did like his war with the banana peels. That was pretty funny. <laughs> How he was like, just for me, of course, just for me. I have to fight this stereotype every day, even at work, <laughs> even from the uncaring cosmos. Caring to me, well, first of all, I'll say that to me, the first two parts of Heaven's Reach was kind of a return to form. This book reads much more like Star Tide Rising or the Uplift War than like brightness reform infinity short to me in terms of pacing and tone and the number of ideas you start spitting out at you because to me one of the one of the things i've always recalled about star tide rising uplift war is how much and how fast he's just throwing ideas at you and he's like i'm not stopping you just got to keep up that was the impression i got from reading heaven's reach and personally I like that, and I like that that kind of writing. So regarding Harry, I like Harry. I thought it was a it was an interesting viewpoint. I think it's interesting that you have a side-sensitive chimpanzee kind of like running around talking about these different levels of e-space and hyperspace. The other part that I felt like that Harry represents is a deliberate writing choice by David Brim because he already has at least two other side-sensitive people in this story that he could have used to introduce eSpace to us, Tom and Kaideki. And he makes the choice to not use them to introduce an entirely new character for the first time. And I think that's a choice kind of indicating to us that some people are present and existing and some people are not. He then deliberately then with Julian's viewpoint within no. the first paragraph no. or two. Yep. No, this is paragraph. a terrible idea. No, I'm going to read not. this. No, I'm going to read this. Look. Okay. Okay. This is what Julian says. She's thinking to herself. 
She's thinking about all the decisions she has to make. And she says, isn't it just like a hero to die saving the world? A little voice pointed out, that's what heroes are for. Yes, she answered, but the world goes on, doesn't it? It keeps needing to be saved. I think this is David Brin, about as clearly as David Brin never does anything, which is usually not very clearly. <laughs> that's um, true. Tell, telling us that he has made a writing decision here. And he's not introducing characters that that he could have easily used to introduce all these concepts to us, which people were familiar with. That indicates to us that they're no longer a part of the story. They're not here with us anymore. You can disagree with me all you want to, but I think there's enough supporting evidence at this point. <laughs> otherwise, because otherwise Harry would not be necessary if they were around. I think Harry is necessary because he is the introduction into the Institute and the culture, the galactic culture. I absolutely agree. And you could have done that with Tom and Kaideki. No, 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 not while maintaining mystery. Really Tom, super, super action thriller, spy, super Mm. character dude who knows everything already. then, Then we would know that Tom is alive and Bryn doesn't want us to know things. He wants us to guess things. And also he has actually forsworn his, loyalties and is actually in that society tom hasn't done that kaideki hasn't done that it wouldn't make sense to use either one of them in that part well that's an important part of that personal character and that personal character story arc look and i agree that look personally i like harry i I think he's a fascinating character i like his at the same time he has a level of detachment that we don't normally see in other characters in the story but He's got his own little side order of contempt for galactic society, which which I just I find it very appealing. I, I just find his whole person. I find him very appealing. But again, I think these are writing decisions that David Brin has, has has made to kind of indicate to us that certain people are no longer going to be involved in the story. And I'm not going to talk about it anymore. But I I, uh, I think yeah, those already, are pretty compelling points. We already <laughs> argued about that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think that Tom or Krydecki could fulfill the purpose that Harry is written to provide in this story. I think, sure, they, they could do fun things in eSpace, whatever, but I don't think that they have... They're already too involved. We need new people to get sucked into this story. And Bryn absolutely wants to leave them as a dangling thread. He wants to leave that as an indeterminate dangling thread that we have no idea what happened to them, and we just have to trust maybe... Well, I have to trust that Jillian is right. <laughs> that, Jillian, okay. that Jillian has hope, even though at some point she started uh, referring to him in the past tense. I mean, look, oh. some, people, some people in that universe believe the Rothen are the patrons of humanity, despite the evidence to the contrary. I am totally fine with you guys. There's no evidence. You believe. There's, no, sure. there's not enough evidence. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> this is part of the fun of reading the uplift stories generally is that you can have a debate like this about any one of like a half dozen topics. Both sides are right and both sides are wrong. That's part of the fun of reading the uplift, the uplift saga. When I said I find Harry annoying, I didn't mean that. I just mean that he is not somebody I would want to hang out with. Not that he was a bad character or whatever. So that's... Like, it's very similar in my mind to Dedinger's faction. We know that Dedinger at least survived. We know that much. But what we don't know is if he's going to lead a successful religious, like, civil war across the slope. Right. Bryn likes us to think things like that and and for us to consider all the different possibilities. And sure, I think he definitely says something about Dedinger, and he says something by providing basically the entire rest of the slope other than these desert nomads as not really being into the whole burn everything down but there's definitely factions and they're strong they're powerful they have militias but overall and oh, i'm way too off topic yeah <laughs> well, we need to keep this I, tight era, era. This, it, it is a bold choice by Bryn to choose to bring in an entirely new character in the final book of his trilogy it's a really really bold choice and i think uh yeah. Only somebody with his kind of, I mean, look, you need to be a really good writer or a really, really confident writer to even try it, right? So, but anyways, I, I like the character. 
Bryn at some point said, okay, I have hyperspace levels A through E, and I think I need to show all of them before this book is done. <laughs> <laughs> and E space has been a little baby of mine that I've been imagining for quite some time, and I'm going to get it in here. Yeah, I kind of feel that way too. He, um, he needed an outline. I mean, isn't it cool? Isn't, isn't E-Space cool? It's a it, land it's of living, cool. I, living ideas. Yeah. And like of alifors. Yeah. What is it? Memes thing. Think of it this way. He's creating E-Space approximately, what, five years or six years before the explosion of Twitter and Facebook and yep. viral memes. Oh, I mean, wow. he's, he's literally talking about living ideas and mimetic technology and being aware of a piece of knowledge without looking at it directly. I mean, look, if anybody wants to get an idea of his brilliance. And if you go back through the books, you'll notice that when the library unit is asked about the symbols that were found on the cache of uh, stuff recovered from the shallow cluster, there's an image that they see. And Mm -hmm. the library like begrudgingly said that use of this image is mimetically discouraged. Oh, really? I missed that. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. One of the first mentions of memes in the Uplift universe. And now we get to really explore how sophisticated memetic technology is within the five galaxies to the point where there's an entire realm of hyperspace where they just live freely, a literal land of ideas. I agree with everything Kip said. I, I just want to take this point just to hammer home that if you want to see the power of Bryn's ability to kind of predict the future and see the future, eSpace is probably no better example of it than that. Yeah, and yep. I didn't make the connection to Twitter until Kip said it, but yeah, that's absolutely true. Kip, did you say that? Yeah, Kip said it. <laughs> did he okay. say it or did Ara say it? I'm sorry, Ara. It's fine. I'm not here. I'm not here. It's fine. I'm hey, sorry, Ara. Ara. How does it feel? <laughs> <laughs> I am mimetically uh, unknown, so. Oh, come on. It was. Recognition of error making valid points is mimetically discouraged. (laughs) (laughs) I believe we encourage saying, shut up, error. That's what we encourage. (laughs) Apparently. Apparently. (laughs) Well, just me. (laughs) Just you. Just you. I think about eSpace a lot. Uh, (laughs) eSpace and Bryn are the places where I heard meme for the first time as a kid. He was definitely ahead of the curve on that. Memetics has been, like, theoretically a field of study for longer than that, but Bryn was one of the earlier people to bring it back into popular awareness. Wasn't, I want to say that Dawkins talks about memes, too. Like, that's one of his things. From the selfish gene, maybe? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course he does. Yeah. Uh, It's big in genetics. So... It's based on Darwinian evolution at the base. So, of course, it's big in genetics. And Dawkins loves to talk about... Evolution. Loves to talk about evolution. Absolutely loves to talk about evolution. Moving on from eSpace, let's go to Kazkark Base, which is our first look at an actual outpost of galactic civilization that isn't just like a human colony. What do you folks think of the cosmopolitan Grand Avenue? What we learned from Kazkark Base is that... uh the people from the five galaxies know just as little as the humans do. They're just as much a bunch of dumb A's because you're going to bleep it out if I say uh, Kip. They're a bunch <laughs> of dumb. They're a bunch of dumb A's who just don't know anything, and uh, they're just a bunch of hillbillies who just try to get along the way humans are trying to figure things out. Except they have this capital T truth with the Galactic Library, and the humans don't. And that's really the only difference between the two of them, as far as I could tell. So I thought it was illuminating because it kind of showed that we spent the entire series up till Heaven's Reach looking at galactic civilization as some huge, gigantic power that that can crush humans, which it can. But we look at it in the scheme of the rest of the universe, and they're really like low man on the totem pole relative to the rest of the universe. Yeah. The only thing I would add to that is that I find it, Interesting that despite the fact that they're supposedly retired, it's known. We're still talking about Kazkark base. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I have nothing to say. So was Era, but (laughs) fine, fine. Let's move on to the fractal world then. Well, what do you you want to say? (laughs) 
Okay. I think that Kazkark Base is a lovely little cosmopolitan community, but it's fascinating that the only reason that it's been inhabited so much as it has been in recent years is because of all of the fractious divisiveness of this prophesied time of changes. The only mm-hmm. reason that the population of the base has exploded into the millions is because they're all there to gossip. <laughs> The other thing that I really got the impression of with Kaskar Base is that galactic civilization is really like what the, like an Indian caste system writ large. Because how many scenes, I think there was at least one distinct scene where Harry is like being super extremely overly servile in a super contemptuous way that completely goes over the head of the alien that he's uh, kowtowing to. And yep. I love that. I love that both uh, on various levels. So, anyways, irreverence, right? Yes. and and that brings up again how the wolfling races are just different. Like we say, snarky humor, and, and yeah, exactly. And they don't get it. <laughs> it's great. Yep, humor, sarcasm, irreverence, all of these things define Earth Clan and are almost unknown in the larger galaxy. You know, that is just something that is so beyond me, maybe because I'm a super sarcastic and snarky person. But the idea that somebody wouldn't, you know, that they wouldn't use it or they wouldn't get it. I don't know. It's alien. (laughs) It is alien. It's very alien. But when you've been raised, literally raised to respect the order of the five galaxies, to respect the lines of clients and patrons, to watch all of your steps and your actions to bring honor onto your clan and avoid dishonor. There's not a lot of room for humor in that. It's just servility and docility and maybe ambition and arrogance, but there's not a lot of room for humor. Hmm. Uh, There's a historical analog to this. So, for example, do you know what the Romans would call people who were not Romans? Or do you know what the Chinese Empire would call people who were not part of the Chinese Empire? They'd call them barbarians. And yep. that's the equivalent of what's going on here. If you are not a part of galactic civilization, you are, quote, a wolfling, end quote. Like, just, just putting them in, in this one box because they don't have the capacity to see themselves as anything other than the superior civilization. Uh, that's, that is something that is universal in human culture, I think. Uh, the, the branding of the outsider. In authoritarian regimes, you often don't see any sort of like place for freedom of expression of humor. Not officially, anyways. That's true. Not in public. And with distinction. Okay. So now we can move on from Kazkark Base, now that we've said enough about that. Let's go to the two other orders of life that we get to see for the first time. The Zhang and the Machines. How did those strike you? Red, do you want to lead off or... Well, it's interesting because you, so the Zhang are there with their machine employees to collect carbon from the star. Yep. The name I cannot remember ever. Is Minuti. Is Minuti. And they kind of accidentally run in to this chase that's going on. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, they decide to help Streaker. So Do you remember why? I don't remember why. I'm like trying to, doesn't like. The Glavers. Oh, the Glavers. That's right. Okay. So yeah. So they the Glavers are hanging out on the ship and Jillian uses the Glavers to communicate kind of with the Zang. Mm-hmm. And so basically they're rescuing the Glavers because it turns out that the Glavers are a former employee and that they were used by oxygen breathers to communicate with the Zang. Yeah, the Glavers used to have a knack for communicating with Zhang. It was one of the things that brought them great renown and wealth when they were still starfaring members of the Five Galaxies. One day, some sort of financial obligation happened back when they were still starfaring members of the Five Galaxies. And one day, they incurred some sort of large debt, and they knew that it was such a large debt that they would never be able to repay it, even though the date that they would have to pay it was so far in the future. And so that the only thing they had left to sell was themselves. So they went down the path of redemption in hopes that one day they could sell themselves to the Zhang and repay that debt. And so they're calling it in. (laughs) They said, hey, we're here. You can have us now. 
there's this really funny part where Jillian's like, do we have to like send the Zang a receipt if we just put him on a yes. ship and put him over there? <laughs> do we need to get a receipt? She tries to get information from the great library and the and the library says very, very little. It obfuscates and it goes around and Sarah is not at all impressed. No. And I'd like to talk about that for a moment. Why do you think the library is so cagey about the Zang? I, I, I thought it's been my impression throughout the entire series that the library's cagey about- for, for EarthClan, period. Basically, I think there's some orders somewhere buried in there that basically EarthClan is supposed to get the, the least amount of information possible. But remember, but, this library unit does not know that they're EarthClan. That's true. They think they're thinning in. That's yep. right. Yeah. You're right. The hydrogen breathers are like a separate class apart, and they're basically considered like radioactive slash dangerous. And honestly, my, my favorite parts regarding the Zane are not the parts where they're interacting with Streaker. It's the parts with Lark. Yeah. I mean, of course. Of course. Because there you get, you actually get to understand what are these hydrogen species he's, he's all about. And look, and Bryn does his Bryn thing, and they are incredibly unique species, uh, an incredibly unique species, which is, is pretty interesting. So I have a theory, which might be incorrect. Okay. I think the library and the institutes have decided that they're going to scare everybody about the hydrogen breathers as a way of, hmm. The institutes want to keep the oxygen breathers away from the hydrogen breathers. They don't want interaction. And well, that they, is one of their stated goals. But I think that they don't want it because it'll help suppress information. Does that make sense? Just like the library is cagey all the time, doesn't want to tell you what's going on. So you think that the Zang have information that the library doesn't want getting out? Possibly, or they just don't want the free dis- distribution of information in general. Can we stop here for a second? Because there's a really cool moment with the hydrogen breathers where they give the streaker this spiffy new uh, outer shell that's like, haha, come and get us now, right? And So uh, that's not the Zang. That's not the Zang no, to that, do that. That's, that's, that's the machine. That's the yeah. machines. Yeah, that's right. But I mean, yeah. So No, but my point is, is that the Institute doesn't want any information that they can't control. And so if oxygen breathers are interacting with the hydrogen breathers, there might be information that's not in control of the Institute. The Zang don't even have to have a specific thing. They just don't want information out there that they don't control. That's my theory. But she's agreeing with you, Kip. That seems uh, a little bit more paranoid than I would normally credit the Institutes with. Mm. But I can see that. Maybe. My impression this reread, honestly, is that the library is supposed to be this end-all and be-all of all knowledge, and the fact of the matter is, it isn't. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that the Galactic Library doesn't know and does not have enough information about. It's been lost or it's just simply unknown, and so it gives you these, you're, I think you're supposed to believe in Heaven's Reach that the library actually doesn't know. See, I would really like to meet someone who actually has like high tier access to the sector library on Tanith. Mm-hmm. We haven't gotten that. Right. I would love to see if there's like a secret cabal of librarians that actually do know a lot more than they let anyone know. And I want to, I want to know what the secrets are that they are safeguarding. And I want to know why they mimetically discourage certain things. And I want to know what they're hiding because of course they're hiding something, but I want to know what it is. And I want to know how much maybe it was prior generations of librarians that hit it and yes. the current generation has no idea what's going on. That that right there. Like institutions are all about defending the institution. They may not even know what's going on. Like the current ones. That's a very foundation feel to it. But just there's a portion in, in the early foundation books where they're kind of going through uh, the course of losing and relearning technology. And there's Are a part where, no, well, look, the, there's just simply a part where they're using technology without knowing what the hell it is. And that's kind of, that, that seems to be what you guys are saying. They're doing things without knowing what it means. And this is the way we've always done it. Right. So we're like, doing it this way. Yeah. 
but somewhere in the library, there's got to be like a department for mimetic discouragement. And I want to know. <laughs> I want to know what their like day to day task list looks like. I want. <laughs> it's got to be in there. Oh, okay. There's got to be more information than we have access to, and it's fun to wonder about what it is. Which you know, that's Bryn. That's right. <laughs> I, no, I agree. I mean, it's, this is practically his trademark of, I'm going to give you a lot of information, a lot of questions, and I'm not really going to answer anything for you. I'm just going to tell you my story. And if that happens to give you some answers along the way, great. If not, that's fine too, because life is like that. You might get the answers and you might not. And the thing is, is that's, yeah, exactly. I have nothing to add to that. Never mind. <laughs> I do feel like I caught him in a continuity error, though, this read-through around. I need to hear this. When they first talk about the time that the streaker went to Oaka, the green, green world, and the institutes right. betrayed them, I think the first time they mention it, they say it's the Navigation Institute. And then yes. later they say it's the Library Institute. And then later they say it's the Library and Migration Institute. I think you're right. I think you're right. You are. Are you proud and of yourself? <laughs> I'm a little I'm a little proud of myself, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and there's another point where they're describing Ka's ability to go through the transfer nexus and they say it's more of an art than a science, and there's no machine, like no computer has been made that can join that can basically use a transfer point correctly. And I'm like, come on. There's the machine entities are right over there. <laughs> <laughs> you're really telling me you. that there's no ai that can do this and also we just listened to ready's compute like little teaching module talk about how the ai on their salvage ship had degraded below mentation level six which meant it couldn't use a transfer point anymore and like that clearly seems to indicate that there's some sort of automated transfer points mechanism that you could use. Maybe it's just prejudice and bigotry. <laughs> I think it has to go with the orders of life. I think that if or the orders of intelligence, I think if a machine is capable of navigating a transfer point, it's not going to be a part of the oxygen uh, civilization. It's going to be a part of the machine civilization. Yeah, but oh. I think that's disproved by the salvage ship. Mm -mm which was an Maybe. oxygen ship because it was clearly built with life support and nutrient paste makers. <laughs> you know. I still think that salvage ship required some type of organic interaction to be able to, to engage the transfer point. Hmm. I think I'm going to go with ERA on this one. Yeah, I think that they have AI, hmm. but it's not powerful enough. And if something got AI enough... Which the NIST machine is getting really close yeah, to being, yeah. for sure. I think the implication is there's a level of sentience that's required to be able to navigate the transfer points. That's what I think that the end goal is. It's not that you have to be organic. It's that you need a certain level of sentience. I think there's a level of sentience to navigate a difficult transfer point. Maybe. I'm just saying that I think if we had, that our AI would abandon us <laughs> if it got that sentience, <laughs> if that makes sense. But on that particular point, like the description and like, I do like how it shows how awesome of a pilot Kai is. And then it kind of makes me think mm -hmm. back to, to, to Kiparu and go, well, if Ka is the second best, how, how like incredible was Kiparu, right? We never get to see that, really. No, we don't. Uh, they do they mention that Ka shattered a million year record. Once. Right, right. And it wasn't necessarily but, because he was more capable but it was because he was more flamboyant and lucky. Well, he was more daring. He was more willing to take risks. Yes. Yes. Yeah. A, a riskier, more flamboyant pilot who nevertheless did that classic sci-fi trope. Did anybody else notice this? Where the display consoles on the bridge started shooting out sparks and flames. Yes, <laughs> yes I did. Which makes no sense, but it keeps happening. They had to get fire extinguishers to the bridge. <laughs> I think Red would enjoy the, the, this one callback when they talked about he broke this million year record. I couldn't help but think, oh, so cause Maverick and Kiparu is Iceman from Top Gun. Or am I the only one who got that? I did not get it because <laughs> I've only watched 
Top Gun once in my life. And it's not like something I watch a lot of. But yeah, now that you say it, I get it for sure. Well, Ken, if you're listening to this, I hope you appreciate it. So. <laughs> He did like the the Earth Tanith run or something, and only five Mctars. Yeah, <laughs> I was just I was gonna go I with of him as like Han Solo. Exactly, that's where I went. Yeah, yeah Han Solo. Because Mctars are a unit of distance, much like parsecs are. Right. I mean, both of them involve singularities, didn't they? Yeah. Wow. Mm. Yeah, Bryn, Bryn, just sneaking those little those little tidbits in. Indeed. Okay. So we've gone on to our first two orders of life, and let's go on to the next one that we get, which is the retired order. Era, you've already talked about this. You've already said how they compare like another ants to mountains explanation, much like how Earth Clan was to the five galaxies in the first place. Mm-hmm. How cool is a Dyson sphere? I was about to say, the, the, uh, Red apparently had a lot to say, so I'm going to be really interested to see what she had to say about the old ones. About the old ones. The old ones are, so like I said, they pretend to be uninterested, but they really aren't. They are willing to intervene on behalf of their grandchildren, so to speak. Yeah. When you poke their grandkids, they come to the rescue, kind of. Or if you poke them, I guess. And they're pretty evil. They're pretty (laughs) evil, guys. I want to say one thing here. Okay. I want to say that it's very important to remember that we get information in the Joe Fur points of view, where uh, specifically from Ewasks, where he notes that most of the population of that Chriswell structure had mm-hmm. already departed. They'd already yes. left. Yeah. And like... so it's very possible that most of the people who were left were just the fanatics, and or, pe- the people who remained are the fanatics. And the people who left are people who had no tolerance for that. Right, right. Yeah. That's fair. In fact, as Streaker is flying away, there's also a bunch of people that are fleeing that are old ones. Yep. There's a flotilla of retired ships. Right. But what they did to Emerson, where they basically are ransoming a portion of his brain to him. Yes. Yes, they are. I was just like, oh my God, that is terrible. Because he can think for a minute. He can think for a minute. This is what I needed. When they said they ransomed his brain and he was their backup plan. Right. I think their first plan was to ransom it, not to Emerson directly, but to ransom it to the survivors of Kithrop. <gasps> oh, oh, wow. Huh. What do you think, Era? Oh, no. Uh, it's interesting. Huh. Uh, it's an interesting point. I don't know, like, when you guys start talking about Emerson, I'm getting all emotional again because that was the like oh my god, right? The first the first time I read it, I I was like yeah whatever, right? But I'm older now, I've been through a lot more, and reading what Emerson got uh, has gone through, it really affected me in a totally different way than it did the first time I read it. It's probably the most level three thing to to use legendariums level one two three. That probably read in any of the Brim books to date. Like, you know, you get older, like, you know, you like you lose your physical capacity somewhat, right? And God forbid, mm-hmm. you know, thank God I haven't had this, but like you have a heart attack or you lose something of yourself along the way and then you just simply can't do it anymore. And then he's given this moment where you can have it back. And he's refusing, well, of course he's, he's refusing, right? But just when Bryn talks about like how there's levels of despair that, that Emerson didn't know he could reach, like that hit me. That really did. That hit me really, really hard. I mean, look, anybody who, who is alive, who lives long enough, you're going to lose somebody you love. Can you imagine like losing someone you love and being given the opportunity to have that person back? And then you have to say no, and then they're gone forever. I mean, that was kind of like the closest analogy I could think of to what Emerson's experiencing, and it was incredible. I, I, I was, I was just the way the whole thing was written. It really affected me in a, you know, in a good way. As far as extortion schemes go, it's a pretty seemingly effective one. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty so both my mother and my grandmother had dementia towards the end of, end of their lives, and the worst part of the dementia was not when they were all the way down into it. But when it was just oh. starting. Yeah. 
Does that make sense? So like yes, it does. Yeah. when they were aware that they were losing it or they would have yeah. a moment of clarity and they'd be like, oh my gosh. I remember my grandmother saying to my mother, I think I have Alzheimer's. Oh my God. And turned out she did. Mom didn't have Alzheimer's. She had just other issues. But yeah, so that's what it made me think of. So I uh, might've cried again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not really. like despair. I mean, it's the thing I, I fear most in my life yeah. is losing my mind. No, absolutely. Look, look, I mean, to bring it to a personal level, I had, I mean, I've, I've told you guys before, I don't mind saying this, but I have Crohn's disease, right? And the first time I found out I had Crohn's disease, when I was in the emergency room with a hole in my stomach, and they're like, we have to do an emergency operation on you. You might not live, right? Oh, oh my God. Oof. So I had that, right? And I come out of it, and before, like, I was Mr. Athlete, and I would go work out and do all these things. I come out of it with like a bag and I have to like work my way back to being able to be normal again. I've never really been able to, my physical capabilities have never come back to a hundred percent. So, and that happened in the interim between reading Heaven's Reach the first time and this time. And so reading it and just, it was very easy to put myself in that spot again and go, wow. And so it just, I didn't cry, but like, you know, when you're just, you're stunned into silence and all you can do is just contemplate. That's what, that's what this portion did to me. Mm. Man, green team is turning into personal life confessions, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, look, Bryn does this to you. I'm sorry. You know, really? like he will, yep. he will come out of left field and he'll just, he will knock you over the head with something and you just, you've got to stop. I mean, look, you don't have to. You can just read the story and be perfectly content. That's the way I did it the first time I read it. But this time, like, I had to stop and just go, damn, he's an incredible writer. And there's very few writers on the, uh, that I've ever read who can write hard science fiction with really human elements woven into it and tell a compelling, fun story kind of all at the same time. He's giving you the level one, level two, level three, all in his books. And it's, yep. it's an incredible feat of writing. And so now that we've been all downer, once again, this book has lots of fun space chases that are really cool and fighting. <laughs> I want to continue on this point that LRB brought up and that I am now using to refute Era's idea that the Kithrop people died. So <laughs> okay. let's, let's, read some, let's read some quotes here. <laughs> we did not destroy those portions of your organic brain we borrowed took expropriated a few grams of tissue for use in a great goal our need was greater than yours and then in fact we desired slash needed the tissue itself if truth be told it seemed far more valuable to us than you were ever likely to be as a whole entity although it might have been better if you were of a slightly different species but we had physical possession of just one earthling, so it was ordained that you would be our donor. Ooh. And yeah. then, some of us still have faith slash confidence in that plan, though it was, at best, always a gamble, an attempt to bribe one who is, was, far away from here. Ooh. I like this. I like this. So I think they wanted a dolphin language center to replace Krydeki's missing one and then get the location of the shallow cluster out of him. Know. We will never know, will we, Kip? We, we will never know. But I think this is the clearest that we get from the old ones, at least. At least so far. So, so again, I, I want to come back to, we mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, and I think it's worth hitting the point now. This thread is left unanswered. And I can argue from the book points that prove my point, and Kip can argue points from his book that prove his point, and we're both right. And we're both wrong. <laughs> and that's the beauty of reading this story is that you can read it and get your own story out of it. And then the person next to you can have a completely different interpretation of it. And it'd be just as good. So, so I love that. Uh, number one son has not read as far in the series yet, but he's on your side, Era, just so you know. Yeah, well, I never son. liked him anyways. <laughs> your son sounds like, like a really, really smart kid. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a good, that, Kate, that Kate, Kate, it's an excellent point, though. It's an excellent point. 
It is. I, I like it. It's something I noticed this time that I'd never noticed before. So you wouldn't have noticed if I hadn't pushed you, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Does anyone have any? points to go to that they want to get to before I do the, our last one, which is going to be about looking backwards on the fractal world from the point of view of Streaker going through those two displays. I just want to touch for a minute on, I guess, what were, was everybody's thoughts on the Streaker crew? And when I'm talking about the Streaker crew, I'm thinking of Tisht versus Alvin and Sarah and kind of because there's a whole lot of stuff going on on this trip. And what I was struck by this time, if you remember back in Star Tide Rising, Julian had a, con- had a control. Like, she knew what everybody was doing. And I don't know whether it's just the, the amount of stress she's under or what, but she seems completely unaware of the tensions that are going on on the ship at this point in Heaven's Reach. Mm. What, I, think- did, I didn't know if anybody got any thoughts on that. So. No, I think you're right. I think Jillian, they mentioned multiple times that she has almost near complete loyalty from the crew at this point. This is the crew, this like skeleton crew that they have left. They all trust her and they think no one else could have gotten us through these last three years. And it's only Jillian and Tisht that seem to really doubt it. And Tisht, I mean, Poor girl. not acting logically anymore. No, she's back in her little cult. And I mean, she's seeking the safety and comfort of religion. Right. Well, yeah, that's fair. I mean, and if you look at it, Bryn is retroactively saying Heaven's Reach. She's always been this uh, part of the Danakite religion, right? Yeah. And she's falling back on it. I guess at this point in times of stress. So, I mean, that's not, it's not an unreasonable stance that, 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 that Kip is. I mean, she knows she's committing treason. She knows that. She does. And she feels bad about it. And she She originally goes to see the Rothan and like, well, you were doing this and you were doing that and you were doing this. And then the second the thing comes over, whatever, it's like the rocket. I don't know, whatever, you know. And she thinks about all of her doubts. She thinks about all of the stories that she's gotten about what the Rothan did on Jijo and how they were criminals and how they sold out Jijo to the Joe Fur and how they were complicit in the potential extinction of the Jikek. And then she sees his face and it's the same one that was at, she remembers from her childhood. And she just decides to stop thinking about those critical thoughts. So I'm wondering, is it actually the same Rothan? Is it like the same person or is it just? She says it is. Yeah, I think it, I think it, that's that was my thought. Yeah. So I had a thought. Okay. The dolphins are already considered the most skilled p- pilots and they've been flying for not that long. Mm-hmm. Not very long at all. This is the yeah. first independent dolphin ship. Right. And how cool is that? I just love that part that the dolphins are the best pilots. I, I mean, honestly, it makes me think that the rest of galactic civilization is sucky pilots. <laughs> <laughs> Well, also, well, no, 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 no. Because here, I, I, here's the point that I'm. I, I, what it made me think of is, oh, look, here's a whole galactic civilization who's just literally relying on this library, telling them, here, do X, Y, Z, and you will get A, B, C as a result. So humans kind of figured out how to do stuff on their own, and then they have these dolphins, and they say, fly. And they do X, Y, Z and come out with A, D, and Q. And all of a sudden they're going, oh my goodness, look at this imagination and creativity and all the stuff that just doesn't exist in galactic uh, civilization. Well, I don't think your point's incompatible with mine. (laughs) Dolphins evolved in a three-dimensional world, like in the ocean. They can go up and down as well as back and forth, which we didn't know that way. But we met the Gubru who can fly. True, that's true. And we met the Brothers of the Night who were basically squid. Yeah. Okay. That's right. I forgot about that. Anyway, but I think that's part of why dolphins are good pilots. Oh, it's undoubtedly part of why they're good pilots. They're capable of... Like, dolphin brains are much larger than human brains, for the record. But a lot of it's devoted to echolocation. 
yep. and sensory information. And we get glimpses of that in Infinity Shore when Ka and Pipo are together and they're like, we don't have to be nostalgic about or like look backwards at places that we've been knowing that we're saying goodbye to them because we will always carry these sound images of the places in our minds and we can recreate it perfectly from memory wherever we go. That was cool when they did that. That's a very cool thing. Yeah, definitely. I, I like how Brit describes dolphins. Dolphins are at their best when they're dolphins. And they're at their worst when they're humans, right? Right. Or Which is why I love of... Ka going through Transfer Network. <laughs> I love Ka being a pilot. Yeah. Okay. Last scene that we're going to go with. As Streaker departs from the conflagration of the Criswell structure and the destroyed fractal world, there's two views of what they're leaving behind them. And one is the light in normal space, and it shows them effectively going backwards in time. They see the Criswell structure putting itself back together magically. And then another is through sea level hyperspace, where every time the ship dips in and out, it gets information for each of them. And the sea level hyperspace one shows this probability description of what's happening at the fractal world. And so it, it seems to shift as it gets destroyed. And like what seems to be one destroyed section over here might suddenly shift to be over there at the next moment because it's all just probabilistic. And so we never actually get a full accounting of what happens. We just get a near certainty that the habitat has been destroyed. And it's interesting that most of the crew are looking at both of them, but specifically notes that two of the members, Jillian and Sarah, are only looking at the hyperspace one. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's great that it shows that those two members of the crew have no concern for the past. They only care about the now and the future and what's going to happen to Streaker. And I love that for both of them. I agree. What do you guys think and about that moment? That awesome sci-fi moment? No, that was awesome. I'll also say that... Uh... You got to see most of that through Alvin's point of view, right? Right. And, and Alvin shook, right? I mean, he really is. He's a, he's a kid. He's seen, like, all this massive stuff going on. He thought he was originally on a suicide run. He kind of accepted that. And then he got this chance to live. And then he's seeing all these trillions of people being destroyed. And you brought this up earlier, Kip. But then Jillian turns to him and says, you get used to it, right? Right. Yep. And he's just reverberating with that phrase this entire time. That's right, because Julian obviously meant it in one way, and he's taking it in another way. And she's looking forward, he's looking back. Yep. But also, I think that it's in two ways, because he's also experiencing physical discomfort, like going through into whatever they're going mm -hmm. into, because that stuff all just turns to mush in my brain. So I think he initially took it as you, you'll get used to it as in the physical distress. He's not in physical distress at that moment because they haven't gone into the transfer point yet. That's okay. when he gets sick. He gets yeah. sick in the transfer points. Okay. And when, at this point, yeah. they're, they're just going through sea level hyperspace, which has no effect basically on your body. Okay. No, when, when, when she says you get used to it, he's looking back and seeing the fractal world being reformed at the same time he's aware that the fractal world is getting completely destroyed. Jillian okay. is only looking forward when she tells him. And so she's only seeing, hey, look, you know, this place is probably toast. And yep. her, her response to him yeah. is, yeah. you get used to it. Okay. I must have conflated the two in my brain because I was trying to finish up the second reread. And so. Yeah. It's a really powerful point. Go ahead, Kip. She is looking forward, but. And that's her job. That That is absolutely her job as the captain of this vessel. She has to get the most up-to-date information and can't waste any of her time on looking at what the fractal world looked like before it was destroyed. But okay. he is the chronicler of this story. And so he needs all of the information. He needs a high-level overview of everything. He oh. doesn't need to know necessarily what's coming next. He just needs to write it down as it happens. And so he needs to write down the story of both of these screens. And that's his job. His job is to take in all the sides of this. And I like that for him, too. I do like that 
he seems to be the one that's the most affected by this, right? Because yep. his friends are varying degrees of unaffected by what's going on with the fractal world. And honestly, it makes uh, he, he think may it's not cool. Be, yeah, <laughs> he may, he may not be completely a humaker, but you know, he's the most human point of view that we get, like from at that point in the story. Yeah, you have to look at the races of each of his friends. Right. Because both the Qhins and the Urs are high K organisms that don't really care about large loss of life because it happens in their life cycle naturally. The Gakek are a race that's almost extinct across the galaxy and have grown up with this sort of fatalistic sense of self anyways. And then these humans, they're all used to it. Slash Sarah is just looking forward to the future and trying to help out. And Alvin knows that he can't help, knows that he doesn't have advice that he can give about strategic planning or hyperspatial maneuvers. And he laments that, but he does know that he can tell the story. Right. So I was going to say, interestingly, Ewasks, is that how we decided we were saying it? Um, Ewasks. Yeah, Ewasks. (laughs) He, we, they, whatever, you know, within the rings, there are rings that are mourning the loss of trillions of lives. And the master ring is like, ah, don't worry about it. But the other rings, were, mm-hmm. they were having a discussion about it. So he's actually the one that is most, is the second most affected. Yep. And I found Although that Although there's a very cute little moment where the master ring is contemplating the worst that could happen. And it's like, I could be disassembled and right. <laughs> and And then he's like, I sense that some of you are not appropriately upset about upset. this idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> And then he's like, oh, my wild trachy rings. You're so much better at sneaking than I am. Help me sneak away and hide. (laughs) I was like, this is quite the turn. (laughs) Yep, exactly. Now Ewasks is on the run within his own ship because his captain stack is dead. Yep. And the other Jofer want to kill him. Mm -hmm. Anyway. And we can just hope that they forget about him. Yeah. So thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Thank you, Era. Thank you, Red. You can join the conversation on our Discord, Reddit, Twitter. If you feel generous, you can support the Legendarium on Patreon. Thank you, Horizon Brave, for getting us all started, and Craig for loaning us this corner of his media empire. Our intro and outro music is Galactic Damages by Jingle Punks. Thank you, everyone. Goodbye. Good night.